0: Would you open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22. We have no children's church today, so kids can sit tight and hear God's Word as well. Revelation chapter 22, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible, finally coming to the conclusion of the book. And this morning we're studying verses 6 to 15, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 15. Let me read those verses. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Can you believe we're finally coming to the end of the book of Revelation? Uh, We started studying this in November of 2009, so we're at uh, 10 months here. Uh, It's been an interesting study. I'll admit that when I first embarked on preaching this book, I I came at it with a mixture of excitement and trepidation just because it is a challenging book. It's very—it's some very strange things. You know, we've seen visions of dragons and beasts and fire and blood and wrath. Uh, Revelation has taken us to the very edge of hell. And it's also elevated us and lifted us up to the pearly gates where we could see eternal life. It's an incredible book. We've seen judgment and salvation, but now it's time to try to pull this book together and, and to say, okay, what does this mean for us? You know, to have studied a book like this for 10 months is a significant event in the life of a congregation, and so we need to kind of draw together all the threads And as we come to the conclusion of the book and ask ourselves, what does this book mean? What What is it that we're supposed to take away from this book? And so this morning we come to the last uh, few verses of the book. We'll look at Verses 6 to 15 this Sunday and then 16 to 21 next Sunday and and wrap up this study in Revelation. But but as we come to verses 6 to 15, the book itself actually concludes for us. The book itself is going to pull in some of the themes we've studied and tie them together. And so what I want to do in verses 6 to 15 is look at three major themes here in Revelation, uh, uh, in terms of the conclusion of Revelation, and, and what we'll notice is not only are these three themes are here as to conclude the book, but they all are tied together, they kind of interlock. One theme sets the stage for the next theme, which sets the stage for the next theme. So there's there's a sense of kind of interlockingness here in, in this final conclusion of the book. And that what I'm saying here will make more sense as we study it in a minute. But the first sort of major theme we see as John starts wrapping up Revelation is that first and foremost, revelation is a message from God to us. And that's really emphasized here. This isn't just any book. This is a message from God. Look at verse 6. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. So God sends the angel to tell the servants, that's us, what God is going to do, what things are about to take place. There's a sense of very much divine intentionality here. Uh, this is a book from God. Revelation is not a piece of creative writing. It's not the narrative of a drug trip. <laughs> uh, it, it's not that John just spent too much time out in the sun on the island of Patmos. You know, This is a message from God that he sent very intentionally through angels, and there's lots of angels in Revelation, bringing his revelation and then he brings it to John. Look at verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. I saw this. I heard it. I'm writing it down for you. Right? This, this experience was so intense that he even got confused and worshipped the angels. You see that in verse 8. When I heard and had seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. And the angel said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you. And so John had this amazing experience where God revealed uh, this book to him. And then even in verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of this book because the time is near. So it's a book that God has given and he wants to be communicated. It's to be opened. It's not to be sealed up. And maybe, I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about this kind of sealing language and opening language you find in the book of Revelation. It actually comes out of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, which was written um, you know, several centuries before Revelation, Daniel had a vision of the end times too. And he had all these strange visions. And at the end of it, Daniel wonders, what does this all mean? What is? How am I supposed to understand this? You remember what the angel said to him? The angel said, don't worry about it, Daniel. Just seal it up. Okay? This is about the end times. It's not here yet. Seal it up and go on with your life. Thank you for taking this down. And so Daniel kind of went on with his life. But now John gets the revelation and the angel says, don't seal it, open it. In other words, the time is now. So, so the end times, which Daniel saw as way off, have actually begun with the first coming of Jesus. And that is one of the themes we studied in Revelation, that in the New Testament, the end times is this entire period from the first to second coming of Jesus. We're in the end. This is the final stage of God's history for the world and so so the thing is open up this book, you know, God has sent this book to his angels, the angels gave it to John, John wrote it down, and now we have it. We have God's word. This is an amazing thing to think that God would give his word to us. People wonder, you know, what is God what is God saying? How can I find out what God has to say? People seek answers from above, they seek answers from the other side, they seek answers from within. We go to tarot card readers, consult horoscopes. Maybe I'll get an answer from the stars. We read spiritual guides, uh, gurus, all looking for that answer. of, of is, there, is there some meaning to life? Is there some purpose kind of above and beyond me? Uh, last Sunday we heard all those, uh, if you are here, all the testimonies and baptisms. It was awesome Sunday. And uh, w- one of the ladies who gave her testimony, she told her story of how she came to know Jesus, that before she came to Christ... She said the person she followed was Oprah. (laughs) She said, whatever Oprah said to read, that's what I read. Whatever Oprah said to do, that's what I did. You know, I mean, we all sort of follow some guiding principle. Maybe it's one we construct for ourselves. But for her, that was it. Before she followed Jesus, she followed Oprah. And it was taking her down a path of kind of New Age spirituality and mysticism. And then she found Christ because she was searching for answers. She was searching for meaning. And she found God's Word. God's Word is, you know, He's spoken to us right here. It's so wonderful that God doesn't speak in just some mysterious, mystical way, but it's like He wrote it down. He had it inscribed so we can read His Word. What a gift from God to be able to read His Word. What a gift to have the Bible in our own language. God is speaking through His Word. And not only that but because it's God's word this is the great thing. Look at verse 6 of chapter 22. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And so we've read something trustworthy and true. You know one one of the uh sort of curious features of living in the information age in which we live is that uh, ironically when you live in the information age you actually start to distrust information. It's sort kind of a funny thing. Like, we get so much information, we get so much data, that to, to sort of be a, a savvy person in the information age, you have to have some skepticism about all the information you're getting. So, so, you know, someone says, well, statistics say that. And this little voice in the back of your head is going, you can make statistics say anything, depending on how you ask the question. And, and, you know, well, experts say that. And this little voice in your head is like, huh, what experts? You know, where did they get their degree? I mean, there's all kinds of experts. Some experts tell me that the the Earth is heating up. Other experts say it isn't. You know, they're both scientists with PhDs. I don't know what to believe. And it's easy to to be skeptical about data and information. Um, but here's God's word. You know, God isn't a PhD. He, he's God, and His words are trustworthy and true. It's like, finally. Now maybe the little voice in your head's going, but how do we know if the Bible's true, right? Maybe it's another book, and boy, I, I wish I had, you know, weeks to just go into how amazing the Bible is. We could talk about the astounding archaeological confirmation for centuries of the biblical record. There's no other ancient book like this. There just isn't that has the, the kind of arch, you know. You could archaeologists use it like a map to find things because. It's historically grounded. We could talk philosophically about the relationship between the Bible and science. We could talk about the amazing way that this book was written over millennia through different authors, and yet there's a, a consistent message that runs throughout it. I mean, it's an incredible book. But but I guess what I would say to you is if you're having questions about whether or not the Bible is God's Word, I, I would just say, read it. Have you read it? A lot of times people have objections about the Bible, but they haven't ever read. Read it. You know, if, if this is really God's Word, it will be self-authenticating. You know, one, one of the things about absolute truth is, absolute truth is self-authenticating. You can't really prove absolute truth because if you have something, you say, this is absolute truth, and then you say, prove it. Well, proving it would mean I would have some truth higher than absolute truth to test absolute truth by, but there's no such thing. And so philosophically, if something is absolute, which we all believe in some absolute at some point in our thinking, it will have to be self-authenticating. And so I, that's what I would say about God's Word is you just need to read it. I mean, that's part of what, what pulls our congregation together. You know, this is a really interesting, diverse, kind of motley crew of a church. Uh, lots of different people, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, just a really f- interesting group of people all brought together. What is it that's unifying this congregation? And there's several things. There's the gospel, there's Jesus, and there's God's word. We're a bunch of people who have tried all the other things. You know, if you could survey our congregation in terms of what have you tried in your search for truth, you would would get probably, if you took the whole congregation together, every possible answer has been tried in this church by somebody. You know, New Age spirituality. Different religions, drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, money, you know, whatever, self-indulgence. We, we've tried everything, and part of what draws us together as a congregation is that we just keep coming back to His Word, and we find that it's true, that it's changing our lives, that it, that it works, that it's real, and that it's life-giving. And so we just keep coming back. Even the parts we don't understand that well, like Revelation. You know, it reminds me of when uh, Jesus was teaching the disciples. And he was getting big crowds. I love it. Whenever Jesus got big crowds, he'd say really hard things to see who was serious. He would kind of sift the crowds. So all these big crowds were coming. And he said, you know, I'm the bread of life. And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. And people were like, Woo that's wild. A bunch of people left him. He, he, he lost a bunch of follow- you know, would-be followers. And then he turned to the 12 disciples and he said, what about you? Are you going to leave me? And I love Peter's response. He said, Lord, we don't know where else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And even when we read a book like Revelation, which I don't think after studying it for 10 months, we can say as a church we have plumbed every mystery of this book, that we have solved every part of it. But even as as hard as this book is, it's life-giving. And we say these are the words of life. And that's what keeps drawing us back together, is that it's God's Word. So God is speaking, you know, are we listening? Are we listening to what he has to say? Read his word. It's amazing how it changes our lives. So what then is the message of Revelation? So this is, I'm sort of segueing now into the second sort of summary concluding idea here in these verses in the conclusion. The first is that God has spoken authoritatively. He's given us a true and trustworthy communication. But what is it specifically in Revelation that he's saying? Or put it this way. How would you sum up Revelation? What's what's this whole strange book all about? How would you pull it all together? And I love in verse 7, we have a five-word summary of the book of Revelation. What's this book about? Verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. That's it. The book of Revelation is about Jesus is coming back. That's the whole thing. And everything in Revelation leads up to his coming and everything after it flows out of his coming. But the great hope that Revelation communicates is that Jesus is coming back. Look, he repeats it in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And then he says, my reward is with me and I will give to everyone what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. So when I say Jesus is coming back, he's not just coming back sort of like for a kind of family reunion trip. Uh, he 's coming back as the judge, as the king, as the ruler to whom before him we all must stand. he 's coming back as God in the flesh he 's coming soon. Christ is returning and, and, and so this is what the book Revelation is about. You know, go back way back to chapter one that 's how the book started. In fact, turn to chapter one really quick. take a quick walk through memory lane and revelation here. Revelation chapter one, verse seven. How did the book begin? Look, Revelation 1-7, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. Here's Zechariah 12. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. And then that language, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. So from the very get-go of the book, you have the main thesis put forward. Jesus is coming back. The book concludes with, he's coming back. And in the middle, it's all about, he's coming back. You have in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, do you remember this? The seven letters to the seven churches. And each of those letters ends with, to him who overcomes, to the Christian who stays faithful to Christ. When Christ returns, he will give eternal life, or he'll give the crown of life, or, and he gives all these promises. But even all those letters to the churches are orienting the, the believers to his second coming. Or if you get to Revelation chapter 4 through 21, what I would call the main body of Revelation, where you have all the strange visions and appearances and all the things John sees that are so hard to understand at times. Even there, I would argue, I've argued as I've preached this book that Revelation is structured like a series of cycles. You have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven plagues, and you have all these sevens that come in the book Revelation. And I've argued that at the end of every seven, is some picture of Jesus returning, the final judgment and final salvation. So that Revelation is kind of like a series of waves washing up on the beach. And as each wave comes, it takes us to the second coming of Christ. You know, And as each wave breaks, you can see Jesus returning, sort of in the foam of, of the wave as it comes over. So Revelation has a very sort of uh, cyclical nature to it. But again, the theme is, he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. Are we getting the picture? He's coming back. And so finally, for those of us like me, who sometimes don't get it the first seven times, it's made clear in chapter 22, verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Christ is returning. You know, again, let that sink in. Just as amazing as God has actually spoken to us is the amazing truth that Jesus is coming back. This is our great hope as Christians. You know, the Christian faith is about Jesus. He's really, literally, physically, in power, in glory, returning. There is a day coming when the stock market will shut down forever. There's a day coming when Derby Street shops, you know, won't be open for business. There's a day coming when when uh, the U.N. will not open its doors and, and uh, governments will shut down because Christ will be Lord and he will bring in new heavens and new earth. I mean, this is the crazy thing that we believe as Christians. You know why we believe it? This is what he taught us. Now, sometimes uh, people say about Christianity, I've, I've heard it said, "We well, you know, Christianity, Jesus is good. He, he taught us all to love each other. And I think, yeah, of course he taught people to love. In fact, he is the ultimate expression of God's love, dying on a cross for sinners. But, but he taught so much more than just be nice. You know, it's so reductionistic. Uh, Christ taught, he taught that he was the king. He taught he was coming back someday. You know, this is what he, he told us. I, I am always intrigued when people compare world religions and they sort of glibly say, well, you know, oh, all the world religions are basically the same. They all teach basically the same thing. You know, be nice, be kind. And beyond that, it's just sort of details. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, enlighten me. Like, what is the other world religion that teaches that Jesus is coming back as King of kings, Lord of lords, the Savior, God incarnate, to judge the living and the dead? What is the other religion that teaches that? It's very unique. This is the hope we have. And that's not just sort of an incidental doctrine you know we're just building toward that in the biblical world worldview of history and reality. And not only that, not only is he coming back, but look look at it's something else. Look at it, verse seven. Behold, I am coming soon. I love this soon. Verse twelve. Behold, I am coming soon. Now, what does it mean that he's coming soon? Because let's be honest, it's been almost two thousand years since this was written. And so when is this soon that he's talking about? Uh, Why is, you know, in what sense is he coming soon? One answer to that question is, well, uh, John was just wrong. And he didn't come soon and that's it. But for those of us who've come to believe this is the true and trustworthy word of God, what does it mean that he's coming soon? And I think there's two ways to understand soon. One is to understand soon as describing Uh, The the sense in which we're in the final phase of history that in terms of God's you know I'll give you a theological term redemptive history. That's a Theologian term it it basically means the history of what God is doing to save people In the history of God's working to save a people for himself in redemptive history. We're in the final bit We're in the last two minutes of the game The two-minute bell of warning has sounded this is it It's all come down to this and so this is where we are in the timeline Jesus has risen from the dead. The next major event in God's plan is Jesus returns. And so in that sense, we're in the final bit of the story. And so in that sense, it's soon. It could be any generation. He could come back. Um, as far as it being 2,000 years, that really isn't a problem for God because God is outside of time. Time is different for God. In fact, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but you remember what Peter says. He says, People will say, where is this coming, he promised. Peter answers, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. So we're like, it's been 2,000 years and God's saying, I think it's like two days since I left. Yeah, we're, you know, it's, it's outside, God's outside of time. Another way to, to read the idea that Jesus is coming soon, another way you could interpret that Greek word is is that it means he's coming Quickly or rapidly in other words his coming will be quick and rapid. Is another way to read it uh, So I think of um, you know, jesus often said hey i'm coming like a thief I'm, g- it's going to be a surprise. It's gonna be quick You got to be ready You know, you can't keep saying Ah oh, yeah, jesus that sounds important, but eh, I'll get to that someday right now I'm busy living my life in some way some way down the road. I'll i'll get serious about the lord and No, 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 you, you don't want to play that game. You don't want to play sort of jesus roulette I mean He's coming back. It's going to be quick. It's going to be sudden. But however you understand that phrase, I'm coming soon, I think the point is there's a sense of urgency that Revelation brings. And as we've studied Revelation over the past ten months, I I trust that one of the things I hope that you've gotten out of it and I've gotten out of it is that our sense of urgency about the Gospel has increased. that, That we've become more... S- uh, sensible of uh, sort of the pressure of Christ's coming. Um, you know, every congregation faces spiritual temptations. Every congregation has unique temptations it faces, and South Shore Baptist faces unique spiritual temptations. One of the temptations, uh, uh, Pastor Rich, if you were here, preached on a couple Sundays ago. He preached on the temptation of pride. And I think that's a real, as da- a timely word, and it's a real danger for our church we don't want to think oh boy look we're building a building and so look at our church right people that doesn't matter you know god god can knock a building down if god wanted to give our church derby street shops he could give us derby street shops I mean, I mean he could he could he could give us any building you know if god wanted to give a church the fleet center he can give them the fleet center god is sovereign all the property belongs to him so what a building is or isn't doesn't mean anything it's it's all his anyway we're just the stewards of it so we shouldn't be prideful but you know there's another spiritual temptation that I think faces our church I think it's a spiritual temptation of complacency because we've just got it so darn good even in a recession life really ain't that bad on the south shore is it and we could be complacent in our church we could be complacent in our faith we could say boy wasn't this a wonderful thing that's going on here I'll just sit back and kind of bask in it. But there's an urgency. Christ is coming back. Are we serious about the Gospel? Am I serious about pursuing Christ? Or am I just kind of floating along with this here and enjoying and basking in it? Where's that sense of, you know, the fields are white for the harvest. People on the South Shore need Jesus. Where's our urgency in that? Where's my urgency In all of that, I I feel like that. You know, one of the the things we sometimes wonder when you do a building project is people go, how can I help? What can I do? You know, when you start putting up a building, it's exciting and people are like, I want to do something. I want to be a part of this. Can I I plaster something or paint something or nail something? I want to get my hands on it. And I'll tell you, the best way you can help out with this project besides praying is to start today thinking about Who's in your life that God wants you to reach with the gospel? That's, you know, the building guys can build the building. The building guys can't preach the gospel. Well, maybe if they know the Lord, they can. But you are the ones. You're the church. Let the builders build the building. Let the church be the church. And the church's job, our job, is to love people, to pray, and to share the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners like us and to forgive us and to bring us back into a relationship with God. And so we need a sense of urgency with with uh, the, recome- the coming of Christ. It, it should be stirring us up. We, we shouldn't be as complacent. I, I hope that because of studying Revelation, the coming of Jesus and the final judgment and eternal life and, and all the consequences have become more real and weighty to us as a church and that it's affecting us. And that really leads, I think, we're, we're kind of segueing naturally into the third... Summarizing element here just to round it off Which is that we need to therefore as a church and as christians Persevere in our faith. I think that's the main application of revelation Keep pressing on in your faith. Don't go backwards move forward So do you see that the three links in the chain the first one god has spoken? What has he spoken? Jesus is coming back soon. What does that mean for us? Keep pressing on don't become complacent follow christ overcome Look back at our text. Let's look at this third summarizing element here. Notice there are three places in our passage in three different kinds of language that we're told to press on. The first one is in verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So that's the first call is to keep the words. We need to keep these words. It appears again down in verse uh, 9. He says, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. And so we need to keep what we've read. And what does it mean to keep God's Word? Does it mean we just have a copy of it on the shelf? No, it means read it, integrate it, and may it transform our lives. That's how you know you've kept God's Word. I mean, it's great that we've studied Revelation but if all we do is say, boy, we study Revelation. Yeah. They said it couldn't be done, but we did it. Woo! Okay. So what? We need to read it, integrate it, assimilate it, and then live it. That's what it means to keep God's Word and to live it out in our lives. So here's a little homework assignment for you. You want those so as you like homework? I know everyone loves homework. Sometime this week, just read through Revelation again. It's just sixteen pages in my Bible. That's really not a lot of reading. You can read it. Read it again. Make some notes of the things you remember from the book, the things that stuck out stuck out to you. Maybe you already made some notes in your Bible or something. And then and then sit down and write down and maybe just a paragraph or two what it is you feel God has been laying on your heart to do as a result of reading Revelation. But let's not just kind of finish it and say, Woo, we studied a hard book. Let's Let's keep his word and integrate it. So God has spoken. Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, number one, keep his word. Number two, keep pressing on to follow Christ. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 is a really interesting verse. It says, Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. So you've got four commands there. I I get the last two. If you're holy, keep being holy. If you're doing right, do right more. But those first two are weird, aren't they? If you're doing wrong, keep doing it. And if you're vile, well, keep being vile. I mean, I think it's the only place, one of the few places in the Bible where we're commanded to be vile and to do wrong. I mean, it's, it's strange, isn't it? What is going on with those verses? I think what it is is... Uh, I don't know if there's a technical term for this. I'll call it prophetic threat language. It's that God is threatening people who aren't listening. It's, and it comes, you find similar language in Daniel chapter 12, Ezekiel chapter 3, where the prophets are speaking to people who aren't listening, and so they have to use the strong language to kind of wake them up. I call it prophetic threat language. Hey! Fine, if you're going to be vile, okay, be vile. I was trying to think of an analogy. I don't know if this analogy works or not, but it's kind of like if you were if you were saying to someone, "I'm going to leave. I promise. I'm about to leave. I'm leaving," and the person said to you, "Hey, you know, here's your hat. What's your hurry? You know, don't let the door hit you on the way out." It would make you stop and say, "Like, Ooh, maybe you don't want to leave. Maybe." Ooh, you know, maybe that was a warning. I should stop and rethink this. And so it's kind of like that. It's like the world saying to God, you can't tell us what to do, you know. You can't impose your morality on us. We don't even know if you exist. And God just saying, okay, okay, go do it then, whatever. You know, we're canoeing down the river. We want to canoe down the river of sin away from God. You can't tell us what to do, God. It's as if God says, okay, bon voyage, (laughs) If that's how you're going to be. So it's a warning. Then the thing about the river of sin and the river of worldliness is it's a wonderful, broad canoe ride, but it ends at the waterfall of judgment. And so we're heading toward the day of judgment, and we just keep paddling, and God's like, okay, fine. And we don't hear that as, ooh, maybe I need to stop and pull the canoe over and rethink this. We just keep on paddling. Sometimes people you know, think, why do I need Christ? My life is fine. I have a job. I have money. I have, you know, a house. I don't seek the Lord. I don't, you know, believe this stuff. And, and I'm fine. I do what I want and I seem to have success in my life. So what's the big deal? You don't understand, you know, the river right before the edge of the waterfall can be very placid and calm. You know, the fact that, that you have money or that your life is going good is not an indicator of spiritual health. Sometimes it could be an indicator of God just saying, "Bom voyage." And we're like, "Oh, see, I'm fine." <laughs> but on the other hand, let those who do right continue to do right. Let those who are holy continue to be holy. If going with the flow of the world is like a nice canoe ride down a big river, following Christ is like climbing a mountain. It is tiring, it is taxing, it is strenuous. It's embarrassing sometimes. You know, we're, we're like scaling the mountain and all the people are going by in the canoes saying, what are you doing? You know, Have fun on the mountain. Come on down. You know, people are intertubing you know, with their coolers down the river and, and we're you know sweating it out, trying to obey Christ. It, it, we're going against the world. We're going against our own sinful natures, following the Lord and walking with Him. It's really tiring. But there's this encouragement. If you're doing right by God's power and by God's grace keep going. If you're trying to live a holy life, keep living a holy life. I remember uh, I'm talking to a sister in our church who is now, uh, she, she died. She's gone to be with the Lord. Some of you remember Ruth Crane. She was a member of our church for a long time, faithful member. And uh, I remember I was with her one time when she was really old and near the end and couldn't get out anymore. And she's just kind of like, why am I here? What, what am I doing? You know why, why Why is God just letting me kind of sit here? This is so hard. I can't even get out of bed in the morning and just wondering what God was doing. And, you know, she's asking me these questions. And it was one of those rare times where I actually had a really good answer. Like most of the time people ask me questions like that, and I'm, I'm like, let's pray, you know. And I just, you know, whatever, try to cover up. But it was one of those times where I actually like an answer came to my mind. I was like, oh, Ruth, you know what this is like? This is like, I go, have you ever seen people who climb like really tall mountains, like Mount Everest or in the Himalayas, she's like, not really. And I was like, okay. So when they get really near the top, the the oxygen is so thin that that it's extremely difficult even just to climb. You know, the, the climbers, if you watch them, they're not like running up the mountain. They, they do it's called a rest step. You know, they they take a step, two breaths, and they take a step. You know, and it looks really slow and really and hard. And I said, but Ruth. It's because you're about to summit. It's like, don't give up now. Don't, don't be discouraged now. Don't lose your, your sight of Christ now. You're near the top. Just keep taking the next step. Press on in your faith and your holiness. Because you're getting close and the time is near. God has spoken. Jesus is coming soon. So keep His word. Don't float down the river. Climb the mountain. Keep growing in holiness. And then just the third one here is in verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. When Jesus returns, He will gather all people from all the history of the world, raise them and gather them into one place. All humanity will be there, and then he will separate humanity into two groups. There will be those outside and those inside. There will be those who've rejected Christ and those who've trusted in him and who've washed their robes. Look at the outside, verse fifteen. Outside are the dogs. Now this is the word "dog" in a negative sense. That you know, we think of dog. We're here in America, people love dogs. We have movies like Marley and Me and you know Chihuahua and just these these dog movies and we're, we're all obsessed with our dogs. And we have all these breeds and we have the you know best of show and stuff like that. but you got to remember like you know the more the ancient view of dogs is dogs are gross. you know and if you, I mean, if you go to a, if, if you have a, a Muslim over to your home, if you ever invite a Muslim, hope you guys can have some opportunities to invite a Muslim into your home to show hospitality and share the gospel. If you have a dog, Keep your dog outside, because that's offensive in, in, in Muslim culture. So you know, dog, and a lot of the world is like that. You know, dog. Why would you bring a dog in your house? Dogs are gross, is the mindset. Maybe you've been to a part of the world where you've seen the kind of sort of roaming street dogs that are all scabby and pussy and mangy. I mean, you wouldn't go to a dog like that and be like, ah, ah, you know, lick your face. And you just you're like, ooh, what's that dog got? I don't know. Like, that's the kind of dog we're talking about. And, and if we live in sin, you know, we think it's, it's cool and it's chic. But from God's perspective, it just makes us like dogs. If we persist in sin, if we practice magic arts, you know, reading our horoscopes and going to our psychics. If, we, if we're sexually immoral, which in the Bible pretty much is sex outside of marriage, is contrary to God's design for sexuality. Murderers, which Jesus defined as hate. Idolaters, which can simply be greed. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You know, my problem with verse 15 is that I find myself there. My problem with verse 15 is that we find all of ourselves there. And so to get inside the city, to experience eternal life, verse 14, we have to wash our robes. And how do we wash our robes? Well, let me show you one last verse and then we'll close. Revelation chapter 7 tells us what the robe washing looks like. Revelation chapter 7. Here's one of these visions of the end, of the the final state. This is a vision of the inside the city group. Look at Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Get this, they were wearing white robes. And we're holding palm branches in their hands. Ah, oh, they have white robes. How did they get those robes? Jump down to verse 13. One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, here we go, get this. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross is what washes us clean to have a new relationship with God. It doesn't matter how dirty your life has been. It doesn't matter how checkered your past has been. It doesn't matter if you've got a prison record, if you've got things in your life you're ashamed of. Maybe you're one of those people who walked into church today and is like, is this place going to fall on me? You know? It doesn't matter. The blood of Jesus is can wash away all sin. That's why He shed His blood on the cross. So wash your robes in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Come to know Jesus. Start the mountain climb. It's all worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would reveal to us each individually the truth of who You are, God. Jesus, I pray that we would see you, that we would love you. God, I pray for those here who have questions and doubts and concerns, God, that you would show them who you are, Jesus, that they would see you, that they'd hear your voice, pull the canoe over, wash their robes in the blood of Christ, and start following you. Oh, God, call us to yourself, we pray. Thank you for revelation. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.